Let's go ahead and start uh, this evening. Let's uh, begin with prayer. Our glorious God, thou who hast revealed thyself to us in thy most holy word and has given to us thy spirit that we might understand, that we might walk in thy ways as thou dost enlighten our, our minds. Uh, come among us, our, our God. Fill us, Lord, with thy truth. Give to us earnest desires that thy word indeed would be written upon our hearts and, and not simply upon a, a page in our Bibles, but taken from that to be written upon our minds and our hearts so that we desire uh, to do what thou hast called us to do. We pray, Father, uh, instruct us this evening in thy ways. And forgive us and cleanse us of our sins as we approach thee. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to begin uh, this evening uh, by reading John 13, 12. Start with verse 12, and uh, we'll read through verse 20. The new section that we are covering is verses 16 through 20. We'll have a very brief review from the previous verses before we consider the new verses before us this evening. So, John 13, verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. So at this point in John chapter 13, the Lord Jesus has now washed the feet of his disciples, even the feet of his betrayer, namely Judas, in order to graphically illustrate how he humbled himself in coming to the earth as the God-man, 
to sacrificially offer himself to set his people free uh, from the guilt of their sin, the condemnation of their sin, from the power of sin and dominion of sin over all of them. Peter, you recall, objected to the Lord Jesus coming to him and washing his feet and said that that's never going to happen. And then he added, forever. (laughs) It's never going to happen, Lord, that you're going to wash my feet. And then you recall Jesus responded that if he did not wash Peter's feet, Peter would have no part, no relationship with him. To which, upon hearing that, Peter answered then, not my feet only, Lord, wash my hands, wash my, my uh, head, wash me all over, give me a bath, uh, because uh, I can't think of not having a part of a relationship with you. And Jesus then, upon hearing what Peter said, explains that if one has been entirely washed, then he doesn't need or she does not need to be entirely washed all over again, but simply to have one's feet washed. And we explain that to be entirely washed is simply figurative language for uh, having, when we first become Christians, having all of our sins uh, forgiven uh, in the sight of God uh, We call that justification, where God declares us to be righteous in His Son, through His Son, and uh, and pardons as our judge. He pardons all of our sins once and for all at that time. That's to be entirely washed. We don't have to have that uh, happen uh, again once that has happened. It can't happen more than once. It only happens once. But what we must do if that is true of us that we've been justified then we will daily come to the lord to have our feet washed to have daily our sins now not pardoned by god as a judge but pardoned by god as a reconciled and loving father as we mentioned that's what the lord's prayer is all about Uh, our father which art in heaven is is what Jesus taught us to pray as those who have been justified by faith alone once and for all. So Christ's example here, um, let's be clear, was not just uh, for the benefit of the disciples that were in that room with him at the Passover meal, uh, but it's for the benefit of all of us that we understand this. And I would simply say that if we are not, if we're not convicted by the words of the Lord Jesus here and asking him to reveal to us how we must, not may or might, but how we must serve one another, how we must serve one another uh, even better, than what we are attempting to do now. How can we be more informed? How can we uh, improve and grow in serving one another? Even those that we judge to be a Judas, it doesn't make any difference. 
we don't truly know in our hearts uh, or in our minds who that may be. Jesus knew who Judas was, but we don't. But we are to serve one another. See, if we take the words of Jesus seriously, we're not simply going to say, yeah, I believe that, and yet there not be any practice. If we do that, we're mere hearers of the word, but not doers of it. And God calls us not only be hearers, but to be doers, to practice it. God help us all uh, in this very, very important matter. And Jesus elaborates further on how important this is in the verses before us this evening. So let's consider what the Lord Jesus says in verse 16, John 13, 16. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. The word Lord here, again, in the context, a servant and a Lord would be like a servant and a master. The servant's not greater than his master. Neither is he that is sent, when one is sent on a mission, that one who is sent is not greater than the one that sent him. The one who sends is the greater. The one who is sent is the, is the one who uh, is to go forth with that message. So just to show how important the example of Jesus is, Jesus here highlights the, this verse with those very uh, important words that we've come across before in John. And you'll recall these words, verily, verily, which uh, again mean truly, truly. We've explained when Jesus introduces a verse with verily, verily, it's like the Lord saying, I want you to underscore this, I want you to highlight, I want you to remember. It's not that anything else that he says we can just forget about, but he is wanting especially to highlight what he's about to say here. So what is it uh, that is so important here uh, that he introduces it with verily, verily, in verse 16? Um, and let me just say, you know, when Jesus is introduced in the past uh, in John, John's Gospel, uh, when he's introduced certain uh, statements with verily, verily, uh, these are very, very important that relate to, for example, in John 3, 3, relate to salvation. Um, verily, verily, I say unto you um, uh, that he that uh, is born again uh, shall see the, the kingdom of heaven. John five twenty four uh, again, he introduces with, with verily, verily, which has to do with hearing and believing uh, what Jesus has said, and the one who does has everlasting light. Uh, in John eight fifty eight, introduces with verily, verily, uh, before Abraham was, I am. Basically, again, Jesus is saying, I, I am, I am God. I'm the one who revealed myself to Abraham there in the burning bush. So, you know, Jesus uses verily, verily, doesn't use it every, uh, in every chapter necessarily, 
but he uses it when he wants to emphasize something. And as I said, very important doctrines that he has introduced those doctrines with verily, verily. So is it not very telling that here Jesus introduces this statement uh, with verily, verily, that same emphatic introduction in verse 16. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Jesus is saying, if I've washed your feet, verily, verily, do what I've done to you. Verily, very strong, emphatically. Uh, not only verily, verily, when I teach certain doctrines, but verily, verily, when I call you to follow my example and to do what I have done to you. In other words, Jesus is saying here, it's not only important that you believe what is true, but that you practice what you say you believe and what is, what is true. Uh, there's a real problem in our lives. Uh, it's not something that we should just uh, skip over apathetically. If we are not doing that which we profess to be true, if we are not doing, if we're not practicing the truth, but merely professing the truth, there is something very, very seriously uh, wrong. You see, there cannot be really any true disparity between truth and practice. Truth and practice are not uh, strangers to one another. Truth and practice are not enemies to one another. They are necessary allies and necessary friends to one another. Okay, that's so important for us to, uh, to, uh, to realize and to understand. In fact, I would say we don't truly believe what we say we believe unless we're practicing it. We don't truly understand what we say we understand if we're not practicing it. Okay, that, how do we know we truly understand? How do you know as a parent that your children truly understand what you said um, when they practice? How do you know they are being obedient when they just simply say, I'll, I'll do that, or when they actually do it? When they simply profess it or when they do it? So Jesus is saying here, uh, basically, uh, in verse 16, that we will live out in our, uh, what we believe we are to live out in our daily lives. Uh, our faith and what we profess, what we believe, it must be such of a conviction because any other type of Profession of what you believe. It's not a conviction. It, then you don't believe it. You must be convinced of it. It must be a conviction that you hold. And so, if it is a conviction, and what Jesus has revealed in his word, it will change our desires. It will change our affections. It will change our plans. It will 
change what we watch in our computers. It will change what we listen to, what kind of music we listen to. It will change the way we, we dress. It will change the way we live at home. It will change the way we instruct our children. It will change the way we live in front of our children. It will change the way we treat our spouses. It will change how we prepare ourselves for worship and for Bible studies. It will change how we pray. And we can go on and on. When we truly are convinced and believe the truth, it's going to have an effect. It's not going to stay up here and say, merely mentally, I affirm that. But it's going to evidence it itself in our lives. Otherwise, again, we don't truly believe it. If Jesus, our exalted master, has given to us this example of humbling himself in order to serve one another, we who are his servants, Jesus is saying here, must all the more listen, watch, and follow him. He's our example. He's the master. The servants follow their master. They do what their master does. If Jesus sends his ministers or his servants, then he, this is important for me as a minister of Christ, if he sends me, I'm not greater than him. He's greater than me. I can't do what I want to do or a desire to do independent of it being what Jesus wants me to do and what he calls me to preach what he calls me to teach I can't simply say well uh, Jesus I'm, I'm not comfortable with teaching or preaching that uh, I'm going to do that which I'm more comfortable with uh, if I am sent then I, I don't have that option or that choice and so uh, you know, it's certainly possible to criticize uh, the minister uh, because if one is preaching through a particular book of the Bible and there happens to be in that book of the Bible a lot of hard things to swallow, uh, it's easy to, I suppose, uh, criticize the, the minister. But if the minister is being faithful, to what God says in his word, then our responsibility is not to criticize the minister, but is to recognize those aren't the words of the minister. Those are the words of the Lord God. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. Obviously, the same, the opposite goes, uh, it, it is also true that if he's not preaching or teaching what God says, then there's a heavy, heavy, responsibility and consequence and judgment um, that that falls upon uh, us as ministers if we deviate from what God says. So there, again, um, this, this matter of what Jesus is saying, do basically as I've done to you and follow my example. And if, I, if, if you've been sent, then teach 
and follow what I have given to you. So verse 17, John 13, 17, Jesus says, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Uh, the word there, happy, I think uh, it's probably an unfortunate uh, translation of the Greek word there. Uh, elsewhere, for example, in the Beatitudes, it, it's translated as blessed. You know, think of the uh, Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted, and etc., etc. That's the same word that's used here for happy, blessed. Because, and I think that it's unfortunate because happiness uh, is usually something uh, in our understanding that uh, refers to something, it's an ever-changing emotion, right? You know, you can be happy uh, one minute and, and sad the next minute. And, and, and so uh, I don't think that's what the Lord is is saying here uh, in verse 17. Uh, he's not calling us to, to ever be changing and, you know, happy and then uh, sad, happy, sad on this roller coaster. Uh, I think it is better translated blessed uh, here or blessed um, in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed or blessed are ye if you do them. So Jesus isn't here promising a here again and there again emotional surge of happiness. Uh, he's promising a blessedness that is our, ours all of the time. Through all the trials, difficulties that we face, that's what he's promising is a blessedness. He's promising his blessing upon our lives from now until we die. If we only do what we know to be the truth. If we will do what we know to be the truth, God's blessing will rest upon our lives. That's what Jesus says. If ye know these things, if you know what is true, if you know what I have just taught you with regard to practicing, being a servant, following my example, if you know these things, and uh, that, in, in just a, a little bit of uh, grammar here, if you know these things in, in the Greek um, uh, sentence there, uh, this uh, the way that this is structured, it means if you know these things and you do know these things. It's, it's called a first class uh, conditional sentence of reality. And so the, the particular words that are used in that if-then clause. So if you know these things and you do know them, uh, is, is what Jesus is saying. Uh, then, and here, here's basically the, the thin part of the sentence, then ye are blessed if you do them. Uh, so, we're not merely blessed by knowing, we're blessed by knowing and doing. 
that's what's, again, what Jesus is saying. Um, we want, if we want to get off the emotional roller coaster in our Christian walk uh, and on to a more um, even growing and not having these severe drops and dips and things of that nature in our, in our walk with the Lord, uh, then don't simply desire to know. Desire to know and to do. Because it is the doing that gr begins to ground us. It's the practice that sets up godly habits in our lives. So that we begin again to get off the roller coaster and we have a much, much more uh, consistently growing experience. Not perfection, not sinlessness. Sinlessness doesn't mean that we'll never have any dips or, or you know, um, falling uh, in in our walk at all. But it, but it simply uh, is something Jesus is teaching us here that his promise of blessedness is attached to and I, I take that to be um, not an empty promise I take that to be a real promise from Jesus and he can't break his word he can't lie that if we know these things to be true and we do then if you do them you're blessed. You're blessed. The, the contrary is also true uh, to that. To know and not to do does not bring blessedness, but brings misery. So the more we know and don't practice what we know, uh, the more misery we bring upon ourselves because we have more light and yet we're not practicing we're not walking in the light we have more light you know we think of people who are you know uh, throwing their lives away perhaps through various addictions you know and we say you know what poor miserable creatures but dear ones, um, someone who knows the truth and is not practicing the truth is going to be one of the most discontented people around. It's going to be miserable because their, their conscience is going to continually be condemning them, convicting them that they're not practicing the truth. They're not doing what they say they believe. That's going to be misery. I dare say that there is greater misery among those who know the truth and don't do it than those who do not know the truth and don't do it. Verse 18. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. This statement in verse 18 is directed to Judas Iscariot. Remember, at this point, 
who is actually reclining, his betrayer, who's actually reclining around the table uh, with the other disciples. In that culture, they didn't sit in chairs around a table like, like we do. They, they had uh, a table and then they had like um, a, a couch or, or a something to recline on and so their body might be stretched out and their, their arms, their elbows on, on a cushion and they would be uh, having their meal uh, with, uh, uh, in that fashion. But Judas is there, um, and uh, uh, among them, he has not left, it doesn't appear at this point, uh, uh, he's not left to, to go and make final arrangements to, uh, with the Jewish religious leaders to betray Christ. So he's there, and Jesus is speaking to Judas. Now the other disciples don't understand at this point what's going on. Judas obviously knows what Jesus is saying, uh, that someone there, he knows, Jesus says, I know whom I've chosen, but that the scripture be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. This is a, a prophecy from the Old Testament in Psalm 41 uh, that is quoted here in verse 18, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And so here is uh, Judas. He spent three and a half years uh, with the Lord Jesus as an apostle. I don't know that you can get much closer uh, by way of a, you know, a physical relationship and time spent with someone as as Judas spent that time with the Lord Jesus, as did the other apostles as well. And yet, Judas lifted up his heels against Jesus, like a rebellious horse uh, kicking against its master. Jesus, or Judas, did that to the Lord Jesus. It says this was done, in verse 18, this was done Quote, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So this implies, does it not? Uh, it implies that even the betrayal of the Lord Jesus was not an accident, but was rather determined by God. Certainly back in the Old Testament and ultimately determined because nothing happens apart from God's determination from all eternity, that this was determined even before the creation of the world. Uh, this, is a, this is a very important doctrine. Um, it was determined by God, and yet Judas was responsible for his own sin. Now that may seem like a, seem like a contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. Um, it is, both of those are true. God, God could have prevented uh, Judas from betraying um, Jesus had he chosen to do so. Could have restrained Judas. Uh, but God basically determined what Judas was going to do by not restraining Judas. That was Judas's own 
uh, intent. God didn't put those evil desires inside of Judas. Those evil desires were within Judas. God could have prevented that from happening. He could have restrained Judas had he chosen to do so, but he chose not to, so that Judas did indeed fulfill the very prophecies, and yet it was determined by God because God wasn't going to restrain Judas from doing what Judas wanted to do. That's what it means, for example, in, in Acts 2.23. Acts 2.23. Uh, him, that is Jesus, this is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. Him, that is Jesus, Peter says, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, speaking to the Jews, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Notice again that uh, foreknowledge here does not simply mean that God knew what was going to happen but had nothing at all to do with what was going to happen because that's, foreknowledge is pre preceded by determinate counsel, God's determined counsel. And yet, though it was determined uh, from ages past to, to occur, nevertheless, the Jews are responsible for putting Jesus to death. Ye, he, Peter says, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain the Lord Jesus. The same thing is, is taught in Acts 4, verses 27 and 28. This is um, a prayer that we find here in these verses where the apostles have come back uh, after having appeared uh, before the Sanhedrin, the elders, and told that they ought not to speak in the name of Christ. And they come back and they are praying together and in verses 27 and 28, part of the prayer is this, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. Notice what verse 28 says, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. God could have prevented the Jews uh, from doing what they did. He could have restrained the Jews from doing what they did, as well as the Romans, but he chose not to. There was a plan. And so it was determined by God, all of these things, and yet those who committed these crimes and these sins uh, were responsible because they were doing what they wanted to do. If Jesus was betrayed by a close friend, as by Judas, uh, should we expect that such will not happen to us over the truth of Jesus Christ? 
Are we better than Jesus? Do we, do we believe that uh, if uh, this happened to Jesus, that we will escape being betrayed? When we stand for the truth, that others won't turn against us? Those close to us. Uh, I think that this applies. If this is what, again, what Jesus had said, has already said, if they've done it to me, or, you know, he says in another place, uh, another place in the New Testament, in the Gospels, if they've done it to me, they'll do it to you. Um, because, again, the servant is not above the master, above his Lord. Just as Jesus is to be followed and his example followed, so likewise what was done to him we can expect to be done to us. Is it painful? Just, I mean, just knowing that, that it happened to Jesus isn't going to make, make it not painful to us when it happens. It's going to be painful when that happens. It's going to hurt. But there is much comfort and strength in knowing that they first did it to the Lord. And if we are walking faithfully uh, in His paths of truth and righteousness, it will happen to us. It will happen to us sooner or later. Verse 19. <clears throat> now I tell you before it come to it come that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am He. Here Jesus is preparing uh, his true disciples by giving in advance what to expect. Uh, in the future, what they can expect, and is confirming uh, Scripture and who he is and what he says here. Uh, he says, now I tell you before it come, in other words, before I am betrayed, and again, it's, it's going to happen that very, very night, uh, that he's going to be betrayed there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, so he says, I tell you before uh, I'm betrayed and before my arrest uh, occurs, and then what follows the crucifixion, etc., I tell you before it happens that when it does happen, you, you'll know and believe that I am he. Uh, this will be a confirmation that I am. You see in your, in your Bibles that the word he uh, is in italics. Uh, that simply means that uh, that's added by the translators to fill out the sentence. Sometimes that's helpful uh, and, and important to do to fill out a sentence. Uh, but uh, it's really just... Uh, uh, saying, Jesus is saying, uh, I'm telling you these things before they come to pass that you may know that I am. That I am. I am God. I am 
who I am. I am the, the one who revealed uh, myself to Moses in the burning bush. bush. Remember back in Exodus um, 3.14, that's where uh, the Lord speaking out of the burning bush says, uh, Moses says, who should I say has sent me? When I go to Israel and Egypt, the Israelites in bondage, and they ask, who is it that sent me? Moses says to, to the Lord, what should I say? And the Lord says, tell them that I am has sent you. Uh, see, I am emphasizes that God is, is all-sufficient. He has no need of anyone. Simply, I am. I am eternal. I am infinite. No boundaries. I am that I am. Uh, he is, again, um, uh, the one uh, who is absolutely perfect and completely self-sufficient. Um, and so here he reveals himself. He's, he's also, I think, and I think we can, I, hopefully I'm not reading too much into the passage at this point, but I think that because Judas is still there and, and the Lord Jesus has just spoken in effect to Judas uh, with regard to this citation from the Old Testament that one sitting with me eating bread at my table will lift up his heel against me that when it comes to this verse in verse 19 um, that the Lord Jesus is not merely telling them what's going to happen before it happens, but I believe that he's also in mercy uh, telling Judas, uh, again, we know that it was ordained to occur, so I'm not saying that what God has ordained can be changed, but it's showing that Jesus here, I believe, is still, still um, extending the hand of mercy uh, unto Judas, telling him uh, who he is, what is about to come to pass, telling Judas, you know, basically, um, uh, I know what you're planning to do, um, and telling him, telling Judas, not uh, only all the disciples, but, you know, telling Judas uh, here a warning, a merciful warning to Judas as to what is about to happen. And even though Judas has already received 30 pieces of silver uh, to betray Christ. Then verse 20. We'll, this is our last verse uh, this evening. And again, Jesus begins the, this verse with verily, verily. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. So once again, you can uh, 
draw, as it were, in your mind, underline, highlight what Jesus is saying here. He wants us to do that. That's why there is the, the verily, verily. And he's drawing here a close connection between the one who sins and the one who is sent. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me. So he's drawing a very close connection between the one who sends and the one who is sent. When one in authority uh, sends one under authority <clears throat> to speak on his behalf, uh, there is a delegated authority invested in the one that is sent. For example, um, as, as a parent, um, you send one of your children to convey a message to another one of your children. Now, the one who receives the message may say to the child that's conveying the message, well, who do you think you are? You're just, uh, you're just my brother or my sister. I don't have to listen to you. You're not my boss, right? Um, but if that child says, basically, mom or dad told me to bring this message to you, and so if you don't listen to me, it's not me you're not listening to, it's them you're not listening to. See, that, that's completely different, right? So likewise, if I simply come to you and, and teach you, preach to you, and it's only, it's, it's only my own words, you know, you don't need to listen to me any more than you would listen to, you know, another person down the street. Um, my opinion is, you know, not, not better, or maybe not necessarily worse, but not better than the next person's opinion. But if Jesus has commissioned me and delegated his authority to me to preach and to teach, which is what ordination can, uh, says, it, it, ordination doesn't convey that, but it's an expression of, of that authority. Uh, it's an outward expression and token of that authority uh, in a minister that is sent forth. Then you're not, if you dismiss my words, you're not just merely dismissing my words or my opinion. You're dismissing Christ. If I am, if I, again, you have to go obviously to the word of God and compare what I'm saying with what God says, but when that is the case, you're not simply dismissing my words, you're dismissing God's words. And that's very, very important to understand. You know, again, we can easily dismiss the human um, tool and not, and, and not recognize the God who is wielding and using the tool. And so that's true of the apostles. They were sent by the Lord, but it's true of all faithful ministers. 
who do not go forth in their own name and their authority, but in the name and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and so that's, that's true, whether I'm, you know, as a minister, sometimes I'm behind the pulpit um, uh, preaching, and the authority uh, of Christ is being proclaimed from the pulpit, sometimes I'm teaching, maybe in a little more informal context. Uh, sometimes, sometimes I'm uh, counseling, okay? Sometimes uh, I'm counseling. Uh, is that, as a minister, is that less, um, do, do I lose my authority as a minister when I'm counseling? Um, I only have it when I'm standing behind a pulpit. See, again, the authority goes with the office. Uh, and whatever doesn't mean that the man is infallible. We don't believe in papal infallibility. Okay? Uh, we believe that, that it is the duty and responsibility of everyone to only receive what is declared because it is agreeable to God's word. But if you're going to disagree, then you need to have a good reason. You have to be able to say, I'm convinced from a study and research of God's word that, that this is not true. And then I would simply ask that if that is the case, that we, you come and you talk with me uh, so that we can, again, go to God's word and see what the Lord says. I, I, I'm, I'm not threatened I'm not threatened by that. Uh, I want that to happen. In Acts 17.11, it says that the Bereans uh, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why were they more noble than those in Thessalonica? Because they took the words that were preached by the apostles and they compared the words of the apostles to scripture. They compared even what the apostles said to God's word that had already been revealed in scripture. And, and they're not condemned. They're commended for doing so. And so likewise, I would say uh, that's commendable. But uh, if you disagree... Uh, because I so desire unity. If you disagree, uh, the the right and appropriate thing is to come and talk with me and say, you know, Pastor, you, you taught this, you preached this. Um, uh, you know, I have problems with that. I have concerns with that, or I disagree with that. Uh, let's talk about we're in God's word because that's our infallible rule of faith and practice. Uh, Again, we don't believe in papal or ministerial infallibility. We don't believe in the infallibility of, of assemblies and councils and synods. Uh, the only uh, rule, infallible rule of faith and practice is, is scripture. And so we, we go to the, the word of God. Um, uh, and so that's, that's what I ask you to do uh, if there is... Uh, that, but recognize again, 
even though my authority is not infallible, or my interpretation is not infallible, there is a delegated authority uh, committed to the uh, to faithful ministers uh, from Jesus Christ. Um, I'm not to abuse that authority. Uh, it's delegated. Uh, I can't. Um, I can't act as um, Lord over your conscience. Uh, God alone is Lord of the conscience. His word alone is Lord over the, your conscience. Um, uh, even the apostles uh, made that very clear uh, that they were not lords over the consciences, though they were apostles of Jesus Christ. They weren't lords over the consciences of those at that time that they taught and preached to. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.23, Ye are bought with a price. Be, uh, be not ye the servants of men. Don't submit your conscience uh, to mere men. Uh, submit your conscience to God. And 2 Corinthians 1.24 says... And again, the Apostle Paul is speaking, not for that we have dominion over your faith. Paul is saying, we as apostles don't have dominion over your faith. But are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. By faith in what? In who? By faith you stand in God. By faith you stand in God's word. That's what's infallible. So all true authority, whether it's in the home, a husband, a father, a mother, they don't have absolute authority. I don't have absolute authority. Uh, a lawful civil magistrate doesn't have law, uh, absolute authority. Only God has absolute authority. And his authority is delegated, and we abuse his authority when we don't rule in the way that he calls us to rule and govern in the way he calls us to govern, then we are abusing the authority that he's given to us. When we don't follow his commandments uh, in the use of authority, we're abusing God's authority because we don't have independent authority. Honor thy father and thy mother is given by God, not as an absolute rule, but as one under authority to God. Because God gives that authority to mother and father. Therefore, all authority that we use must be agreeable to God's truth and to God's commandments. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 8, 2 Corinthians 13.8 says, and again, he's speaking as an apostle, for we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. An apostle couldn't do anything contrary to the truth of God. They didn't have independent authority to do so. Nor, do, nor does any minister, nor does any parent, or, or father, or, or husband, or magistrate, um, or boss. Uh, it doesn't matter. No one has absolute authority but God. 
So this is an encouragement as we close. This is an encouragement to those sent by the Lord uh, that they have Christ's authority. Uh, a parent, you have God's authority. A husband, you have Christ's authority. A minister, you have Christ's authority. Uh, a, a lawful magistrate, you have God's authority. Don't abuse it. Don't misuse it. And so it's an encouragement to us that we do have that authority. We shouldn't be demanding it uh, if we actually have it. We don't have to stand there and crack the whip uh, and act as though we don't have it. Uh, because that's what it more confirms that we don't have it when we're doing that and acting that way. Um, uh, but we, we do have that authority. But because we have that authority, we're all the more uh, responsible for God, before God, to exercise authority uh, as loving, caring leaders who are seeking to lead and to go before those that we lead uh, in the paths of truth and righteousness. That's what God would have us to do with our authority and how to use it for his glory. Okay, let's uh, close in prayer. Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, we praise thee and thank thee for uh, the infallible word of God and uh, uh, for thine own infallibility. It is impossible for, for thee to err. Uh, it is impossible for thy word to err. We're, uh, any other judgments by men can err and do err, but uh, uh, Lord, thou cannot. And we pray that thou would make us therefore and equip us with uh, increasing and growing knowledge that we will be able to uh, bring all that we hear uh, to the standard of thine infallible word. And yet at the same time that we would recognize uh, lawful authority invested in, in uh, leadership in the home, leadership in the church, leadership uh, in lawful civil government. Father, we do pray that we would be those who, who not only are uh, hearers of the word, but doers of it. Not only profess the truth, but practice the truth. Thou hast promised that uh, when we do so, we will be blessed. And so help us, Lord, to desire and to seek that blessing that would rest upon our lives not only in affirming the truth, but in practicing it. We ask, Lord, these things through Christ our Savior. Amen.